that uh, ministry tonight. It's a wonderful presence of God here. We're going to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 this evening, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Praise God. Amen. It's good to see uh, Brother Lenny Passione here today. Lenny turned 82 years old today, and it's good to see him. I went up to him and said, happy 83rd birthday, and uh, he got offended, and, uh, but uh, 82 years old, and uh, we appreciate our brother, and uh, praise God. God's a good God. Luke 23, we're going to go there in the word of God. Hallelujah. Luke 23. Let's try to keep our moving around down to a minimum uh, this evening, and I really, really need you to lock in. I got a lot of material here, lots to show you. Uh, this evening. You can close those doors, by the way. You don't have to keep them open. It can be kind of distracting sometimes. Luke 23. We're going to go there in the Word of God. You know, America went through 128 days that our country has never seen before. Think with me about this. October 1st. A man, as we are told, that a man named Stephen Paddock from, the, I believe, the 30th floor of a casino opened fire on a, a concert, killing 57 people and wounding more than 500. 46 days later, a young man from right over here in New Braunfels drove over to a little community called Sutherland Springs. It's outside of San Antonio, and as we all know, shot dead 26 people, including an eight-month-old baby still in the womb. And then 82 days later, 17 students and teachers were massacred two weeks ago in Parkland, Florida. In 128 days. You know, I was, became a Christian almost 40 years ago. That next month will be 39 years. If you would have said to me, Rich, when you get older, America will be a place that within 128 days, you would have that kind of mass killing. I think it's, I, I, I meant to do the math, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 99 people or so. Would die in a few days. This was somebody with a high-powered weapon opening up indiscriminately and shooting total strangers randomly. I would have said, I, I, what kind of world would I have lived in? I wouldn't have even imagined it. I would have thought I was living in a horror movie or perhaps was living in the tribulation period. And yet that's the world that we live in today. It is a world that has become so uh, common that we hear that, um, and yet, if we're all honest, uh, we still want to know who's going to win the World Series, um, and we were still caught up with this situation or that situation. We're right in front of our eyes um, in a period of a little over three months. Uh, randomly, people are being massacred. What happened? Well, there's a lot of people that will tell you the problem is guns. Guns have been a part of America since its inception. There have always been guns, and access to guns is probably easier then than it is now. Pastor Mitchell preached a while back and mentioned in a sermon that in, as a teenager, he would take his gun to school, put it in his locker so that he and his friends could leave the school and go hunting. 
It's the world that they live in. And I know what people say. Well, guns have changed. But I'll tell you what else has changed. People have changed. People are not the same. Now, what I'm going to present to you tonight is I've got to go on record and say I am no conspiracy freak. I don't read Alex Jones or listen to him or go to Infowars.com. I am not part of the John Birch Society. But I began to be very troubled as I was listening uh, to the news on the, on the uh, radio. And I'm listening and I'm fascinated. I would listen a little bit to the Fox News and then I would listen to CNN. I'm just, and, I, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for them to state the obvious. But it became clear to me that nobody's talking about this. I was actually listening to the radio and they were talking about Parkland, Florida and gun issues and they were talking about mental health and they were talking about guns uh, and, and everything and I, began to, and, and I began to speak out loud my frustration and uh, thank God for a godly wife that said, uh, hey, you know what, uh, then you write a book about it. I'm not writing a book, but I am going to preach because what she said was absolutely true. Somebody has to speak out. Now, for the truth is this. I want to preach on something that everybody knows, but the mainstream media will not talk about. And that's the great unmentionable tonight. And so I have a lot of facts and figures and things here I want to present to you this evening. Because, yes, there is a problem with easy access to guns. I have no problem with them saying that an 18-year-old it may not be ready to buy. I, when I heard today that you can buy, a, you have to wait till 21 to buy a, a handgun, but you can buy a long gun at 18. I thought, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And I would say to young men here, uh, you know, you might quit buying toys and grow up. Amen. Well, you know, it could be mental health issues. Well, I'm going to disagree entirely with that prospect. I'm going to submit to you that one of the biggest problems in, the, in America today is not, uh, not enough mental health, it's too much mental health yes. in the name of psychotropic drugs. So I want to preach a sermon called The Unmentionable, Luke 23, verse 1. It says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him, him being the Lord Jesus, by the way, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, what, 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 time out here, time out. 22. <laughs> Sorry, guys, take that back. Take it off, go ahead, remove it. There you go. How funny. All right, listen, uh, you're going to have to open your Bible. And, uh, Book of Luke is right after the book of Mark, and chapter 22 comes right after chapter 21. And so uh, Luke 22, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, that's Jesus, for they feared the people. I'm going to focus in on verse 3 tonight. It says, Then Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. 
And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Father, I pray tonight that you will give us wisdom and discernment. And you will help us to judge the spirit of this age. And I pray for men and women here that have already been propagandized and have opened the door. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin to look at the evil within. And I want you to consider what I believe are some of the scariest words in the whole Bible. Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas. That's what the scripture says. It says, then Satan entered Judas. Or what it is telling us is that Judas was under the influence, and under that influence, he went to betray Jesus Christ to the priests. And having betrayed him, we know that set in motion his arrest and his crucifixion. And it is telling to me that of the four Gospels that mention uh, uh, the the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, that Luke, the physician, uh, is the one uh, who makes this comment that when Judas went out um, and sought to betray the Lord Jesus uh, and thought about where uh, Jesus could be arrested, where the the multitudes couldn't come to his defense, uh, that he was driven by Satan that had entered him. And that as he was operating, he was clearly operating under the influence. See, this evening, no telling what a man will do when a man is possessed by evil. Now, there are two questions that come to mind when you read that verse, then entered, Satan entered Judas. Number one, how does Satan enter a man? And number two, what does a man who Satan has entered look like? What's going on here? Now, I've preached on this subject of demonic possession and demonic uh, influence uh, working in people's lives. um, But uh, I want to just quickly move through this um, as I lay a scriptural foundation. First of all, uh, you people, uh, Satan gains access into people through rebellion. The Bible says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That, uh, the, the, that God created a universe of order, uh, and when people reject order and structure and authority, um, in order for them to do that, they have to embrace a spirit, something in them. I have met lots of people that have questions and people who have dissent. I understand that, but when I talk about rebellion... Um, over the years, I've seen uh, what it happens when somebody uh, rejects uh, God-given authority and how that dominates and controls their spirit. The second one is, uh, is somebody who is ruled by hate and bitterness. Somebody who begins to hate someone so much that you would re- uh, wreak revenge on them. I'm talking about a bitterness where you will spite yourself just in order to get at somebody else. You become so dominated uh, that you have dreams of killing them, that this bitterness dominates and controls you. And you can watch a very bitter person uh, because they will blow up their life if they think it could hurt somebody else. The third one is guilt. Guilt tonight uh, gains access uh, for Satan. And I'm going to tell you why. Because a guilty soul demands justification. There's something about us that when a hole uh, is created, we want to fill that hole. And when people are guilty, 
They begin to live their whole lives on how to justify themselves uh, for that. Uh, some people, they get involved in religious activity. This time of year during Lent, you're going to see people who are crawling on their knees. There in the Philippines, some guy gets crucified um, and people beat themselves and punish themselves, uh, ruled uh, by an unclean spirit that's trying to justify and find justification for their sin. You know what? There are other people, they, the way they justify their sin is they deny their sin. They claim there's no God. They hide behind atheism. Uh, I don't believe there's a God when in fact the atheist uh, believes in God uh, more than most. He just hates him and seeks to justify himself uh, and kind of tell themselves over and over again that what I'm doing is not wrong. I'm not a sinner. I was born this way. Or the Constitution or the Supreme Court says that I'm okay. But there's a fourth way, and that's what I'm preaching on tonight, and that is sorcery. This has everything to do with our message. Sorcery is defined, to put this as pharmakia. If you look up the word sorcery in the Greek, remember the New Testament was written in Greek, and when you find the word sorcery and look it up, the Greek word is pharmakia. Does that look pretty familiar to you? After all, it's where we get our word pharmacy from. And it is defined as the use of medicine or drugs or spells. There's the belief that it was the poisoning of the soul. You will find the term used 13 times in the New King James Bible, whether it's sorcery or sorcerers or sorceries. And it is referring to a belief that people had in Bible times. And that belief was that you could create, using various herbs and spices, something that would have an effect on the soul. You could, you could uh, uh, affect of something, whether you partake of it or you got someone else to partake of it, uh, then uh, they would drink this concoction, uh, they would have this, uh, and it would open up a spirit world. Think with me tonight. They believed that you could take a physical material, whether it was a tree bark uh, or it was a leaf that was grounded up um, or any number of different things, uh, and somehow that physical material imbibed uh, had a spiritual effect. It could do something to that person. It could curse them. It could uh, oppress them. Uh, it could open them up to spirits that controlled them. People took that, uh, so gave that to somebody, hoping that it would make them fall in love. Uh, and uh, they thought they, uh, they would give it to people to dominate or control them. And so this evening, I don't think, it doesn't take any genius to know uh, that drugs are sorcery. That when you smoke marijuana, you are opening yourself up to something. The marijuana that they're smoking, this is not your Nana's marijuana. This is an entirely different kind of marijuana that is at work today and infecting people. Um, and uh, uh, we understand this is very common in the illegal drug culture. You'll get very little argument from people that go into some crack house uh, and see a bunch of crack fiends or meth addicts uh, uh, passed out uh, and totally uh, wasted away. And we say, oh yeah, yeah, that, that is terrible those drugs are doing to them. Well, that, what's happening to the heroin addict? And say, so, yeah, that, that, it looks like they're under a control of a spirit. I want to tell you the world that you and I are living in more and more is turning to drugs to find spiritual and emotional answers. There was a time when people were depressed or anxious that it was time to go to church and talk to the minister and pray. Today, when people are depressed or anxious, they run to Walgreens and get a prescription. Somebody has said that we have changed, uh, or the idea that 
You know, it used to be that when people were suffering, and even if they didn't want to go to the church, they would seek out a psychiatrist or a psychologist and the stereotypical image uh, of a person that was lying on a couch uh, and there in a chair next to him uh, was uh, a psychiatrist sitting there with his tweed jacket with patches on his elbows, uh, a little beard, uh, his yellow pad uh, saying, tell me about your mother uh, and the person lying there and talking about their life. And somehow through this conversation, this trained professional, uh, would begin to highlight uh, conflict in their lives and how to work through that conflict. And up until uh, the 70s and 80s, uh, this was considered how you help people that were suffering from depression and anxiety. No more. Listen to Fortune magazine. Notes that SSRI, antidepressant brands such as Zoloft, Paxil, Celexa, and Luvax which Aluvox, which have become household names, have done more than any other class of drugs to spur psychiatry substitution of pills for couches. And what they're saying is that what normally belonged to a couch and a counselor, they be invented what they call SSRIs, and what that is, it's the idea that we can treat these issues, this conflict of depression and anxiety, with a pill. You don't have to lie on a couch. You don't have to process life. You don't have to think through the conflicts and the reasons you may be feeling the way you're feeling. Uh, oh, no, uh, we can simply give you uh, a prescription, and you can take that prescription, um, and uh, you're going to be better. They are called SSRI, Select Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And what these drugs are is these are drugs that have crossed the threshold in which you can take them and they can have an impact on your mood and how you feel. If you take these drugs and if you're depressed or you're anxious, by taking these drugs, they will affect your mood. They will lift you from your depression. Prozac is called a happy pill. Anxiety can be calmed down and eased because they were able to find a pill that somehow crossed the threshold from physiological issues to mental and emotional and spiritual issues. You know, the story goes that in 1972, there was a 27-year-old graduate assistant named Candace Pert. She was training for a medical degree at John Hopkins University, and she, as she began to work on these, was the one who was able to identify the ability of endorphins and how they affect human mood. She began to realize that there was a location in the brain that if they could tap, it could affect mood. It could affect how people feel. This began to become developed, and pretty soon um, as this did, they began to think through how they could uh, 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 market this, how they could put this into the mainstream. She wrote a book. You know what she called her book? The Molecules of, Emu of Emotion that uh, somehow we have found in matter the ability to affect mood. That you, can, you don't have to feel the way you feel. You can change how you feel with these uh, uh, drugs um, that can manipulate the brain, improve your mood, block negative emotions of depression and anxiety. I want to read you a quote from this woman. Go ahead and put that up. This is by Candace Perth. This is what she said. She says, I'm alarmed at the monster." John Hopkins neuroscientist Solomon Snyder and I created 
when we discovered the simple binding assay for drug receptors 25 years ago. So here's the woman who was responsible 25 years later, looking what the drug companies did. She said, I created a monster. You know, after Columbine, when these uh, two uh, boys who were uh, taking drugs, prescription drugs, psychotropic drugs, shot and killed all those people. And for most of us, that would be the reference point of the beginning of the whole school shooter phase. There's a lady named Ann Tracy. She's a doctor who has given her life to this subject. She tells a very interesting story. She says that she was talking to a pharmacist. This is around the year 2000. And they were talking about SSRIs and these drugs and how there's a side effect for some people that makes them suicidal and homicidal. And, and he said that there was a very nice woman who would regularly come into his pharmacy and she would pick up her Prozac prescription and she was pleasant and nice uh, all the way until the day that she killed her husband. And this man, listen to what this, pharma uh, this pharmacist said. Now, date. This is the year 2000. This is not long after Columbine. Listen to what this pharmacist said. And this was his own anecdotal evidence based on the fact that he was interacting with these people, this first generation of people who were taking Prozac and antidepressants. Go ahead and put that up. The symptoms, the symptoms I see in patients who use and abuse serotogenic drugs of any form could aptly be described as the Hitler syndrome. Overconfidence in one's own policies or decisions, no fear of consequences, criminal behavior, death of people close to the abuser as their preferred method of solving problems in the abuser's life, coldness and lack of humanity. I feel that in 20 years or less, we will be confronted not with one Hitler, but with thousands or millions. Numbers so great that we'll be forced to interact with their distorted thinking on a daily basis. He said that in the year 2000. To me, that's prophetic. Because he would have never guessed 18 years after he said it that a man would open fire and shoot and kill 58 people that a young man who started being served drugs by his parents when he was in school because he couldn't pay attention would take a weapon and slaughter 26 churchgoers. That there was an effect. It says right here that at least 38 school shootings these people, poor people have to keep up with me tonight. At least 38 school shootings or school-related acts of violence have been committed by those taking withdrawing from psychiatric drugs, resulting in 172 wounded and 98 killed. Let's let that sit there. I trust you're looking at that. 38 school shootings committed by those taking or withdrawing from psychiatric drugs. 
I got a video for you. Go ahead, you can shut out the lights and put that. Work with us while we time all this together. This is just a little news clip. You can shut that down. At Fox News, we found the bad scarred story with antidepressants compelling. So we investigated further. We found a disturbing number of recent school shooters were either on medication or were experiencing withdrawal. The list includes 15-year-old Kip Kinkle withdrawing from Prozac when he shot 22 classmates, killing two after murdering his mother and stepfather at his home in Springfield, Oregon. 18-year-old Jason Hoffman on Effexor and Selexa when he opened fire at his California high school, wounding five. 15-year-old Sean Cooper on a mix of antidepressants when he shot students in Idaho. 15-year-old T.J. Solomon, also on a mix of antidepressants, when he aimed his shotgun at classmates in Conyers, Georgia, wounding six. And 17-year-old Eric Harris on Luvox, when he and partner Dylan Klebold killed 12 classmates and a teacher in the bloodiest school massacre yet, Columbine. One of the things that in the past we have known about depression is that it very very rarely leads to violence it's only been since the advent of these new SSRI drugs that we have uh, murderers sometimes even mass murderers taking antidepressant drugs now now um, I'm gonna just read you something here and uh, uh, some of these things were just mentioned here, but listen to this uh, quote right here. It says, Andrea, uh, Andrea Yates is one of the most heartbreaking crimes in modern history. She drowned all five of her children. This is, should be, you should have all this. All five of her children aged seven years down to six months in a bathtub, insisting inner voices commanded her to kill her kids. She had become increasingly psychotic over a course of several years. Yates had been taking the antidepressant Effexor. Columbine mass killer Eric Harris was taking the widely prescribed antidepressant Luvox when he and fellow students Dylan Klebold went on a hellish school shooting rampage in 1999, killing 12 students and a teacher and wounding 24 others. Authorities investigating Cho Sing Hui, who murdered 32 at Virginia Tech in April of uh, uh, 20, uh, 2007, reportedly found prescription drugs for the treatment of psychological problems among his possession, his roommate said his morning routine included taking prescription drugs. Patrick Purdy, school, schoolyard shooting rampage in Stockton, California, the catalyst for the legislative frenzy to ban semi-automatic assault weapons in California and the nation, 25-year-old Purdy, who murdered five children and wounded 30, had been an amitriptyline, an antidepressant, as well as the antipsychotic drug Thorazine. Kip Kinkle, 15, murdered his parents in 1998, the next day went to his school in Springfield, Oregon, opened fire on his classmates, killing two and wounding 22 others. He had been prescribed Prozac and Ritalin. 31-year-old Lori Dan went on a shooting rampage in a second-grade classroom in Winnetka, Illinois, killing one child and wounding six. She had been taking the antidepressant onofranil as well as lithium, long used to treat mania. In Paducah, Kentucky, 14-year-old Michael Carneal, son of a prominent attorney, traveled to Heath High School and started shooting students in a prayer meeting taking place in the school's lobby, killing three and leaving another paralyzed. Carnell was on Ritalin, 
and uh, 60-year-old Native American Jeff Wise living on Minnesota's Red Lake Indian Reservation shot and killed nine people and wounded five others before killing himself. Uh, Wise had been on Prozac. I want you to consider, secondly, the unmentionable tonight. Because there's a conspiracy of silence. I want to give you a couple of scriptures here related to our text. Because Luke 22, 4 and 5, it says these words, So uh, Judas went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So Satan enters into Judas, and then Judas goes to the priests to see how he can help them. And the Bible says they gave them money. Now, we know the Lord Jesus will be crucified. And when then he's ro- he raises from the dead. Um, and now uh, the same chief priests uh, who have given Judas money in order to betray Jesus now go to the Roman soldiers uh, because they do not want the word to get out that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Matthew 28, 12 says they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, the reason why I use those scriptures is I want you to understand that sometimes there's a conspiracy of silence. Or in other words, we're going to give you guys money so you can keep your mouth shut and not tell people what's really going on. And I say that in the context of our topic this evening because there's a very troubling side to this. I just simply scratched the surface of the clear relationship between school shooters and mass shooters at large, in large and psychotropic drugs. That these SSRIs, when they came in and they began to tamper with this area, in some people, not all, they say perhaps one in a thousand. One in a thousand, if you have a, uh, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying to word the math in my head, but if you have one, I'm looking for Paul Harvey, 30 million, 1% of 30 million, or uh, not 1%, but 0.1% would be around 30,000, I believe. Paul's nodding his head, so if I'm wrong, go tell Paul. But can you imagine that they say that 1% or one, I'm not, one of 1,000 might have this kind of reaction? But if you're filling 30 million prescriptions, then what you're saying is there may be 30,000 people out there being driven this way. But you know, we're not hearing about this. And this is what troubled me. I'm listening to the, to the radio, conservative radio, and, I, and, I'm listening, and nobody's saying a word. You know, think about it. Every time there's a shooting, within hours we are told what guns they used, but nobody tells us what drugs they used. They won't even discuss it. It's like it's not even there. We all know that this latest young man, Nicholas Cruz, uh, everybody, family members, oh, yeah, he, he had ADHD. Yeah, he was being treated for this or that. Uh, but, but somehow it's, it's totally silence. It seems to me in our own little research that we've been doing is that after about 2008, about 10 years ago, there's a concerted effort to hide this association. Some of you remember the Batman killer, James Holmes, went into a theater in Colorado on the premiere of the Batman movie and opened fire and shooting and killing. And what, was, what I remember most about that event was uh, 
a couple of days later, they made the comment that within 24 hours, every major pharmaceutical company in America had representatives on the ground to make sure that their drug wasn't associated or mentioned. There has been a concerted effort to say this isn't true. You know, the video that we showed, if you notice the hairstyle and everything, that video, I think, is from 2008. You know why? Because we could not find a single clip from the mainstream media in the last 10 years that mentions the association between mass shootings and psychotropic drugs. Not one. I had somebody today call around. I said, listen, would you please call the local media? Talk to the news director, call the newspaper, call and, and ask anybody that's in the, in the media, mainstream media, how come there seems to be no mention or conversation about this? And, uh, and uh, the report that I got is uh, that, uh, one, is that nobody returned a phone call or an email, including the New York Times, and the person has, says they regularly email New York Times and have an immediate response. Over the years, on a couple of occasions, I've actually been so outraged by something that I read that I contacted uh, the, the writer of the article, and within minutes, uh, 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 journalists are like preachers. They love to talk about their work. And they, they, would, they would immediately, but, but there was no response at all, and then uh, they spoke to somebody who is involved in journalism and is connected to journalists around America, and their response is, nobody will touch this. Nobody wants to touch this. Pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies spend far more than any other industry to influence politicians, having poured close to $2.5 billion into lobbying and funding members of Congress over the past decade. This is according to the Guardian newspaper in London. Listen to this one. Pharmaceutical giants who produce drugs like Zoloft, Prozac, and Paxil spend $2.4 billion a year on direct-to-consumer television advertising. I'm going to tell you the reason why you don't hear about this on Fox and CNN or any of the big networks is because they spend billions of dollars in advertising. They do that for a reason, to keep them quiet, to shut them up. And every time you hear an ad for some stomach ailment or some treatment for cancer and everything else that's uh, uh, associated with these giants, and you see all that advertising, these people will not touch this. One more pharmaceutical company spend more money on advertising than on research. So my, my point is that it is something everybody knows. Drugs are involved in this. Is there the only reason? No, but it is a major contribution. It is a commonality, and yet this has been completely shut down, and that ought to, that ought to get our attention. That ought to you know, help you understand the world in which we are now living. See, because what we're talking about is a bad prescription. We're talking about the fact that there are troubled people out there that are being given something that's only going to make things worse. Listen to this quote. We are talking about human beings who have somehow developed a secret inner life dominated by exceedingly dark thoughts and compulsions, wild mood swings, 
horrible, consuming resentment teetering on the edge of violent frenzy, paranoid delusions fueled by intense emotion, quote, satanic visitations and inner voices that torment them mercilessly sometimes for years, commanding them to commit murder or suicide or both. Does this really sound to you like a person in need of drugs? Does it sound like a disease, a biochemical imbalance in the brain, neurotransmitter activity that's too sluggish, or does it sound like something much more mental, emotional, and even spiritual in origin? Now, I, I, I will go on record and say this evening that I understand that there are particular situations and people that, uh, that I could see the benefit of these types of drugs. I liken it to uh, having to induce a coma because somebody's in a physically tra a traumatic experience uh, and you have to do that in order to try to help them or you have to wear a cast for a little while to stabilize a, a broken bone. I, I understand that this is true, but we're talking about people who go in for a migraine headache uh, and they have this stuff thrown at them. We're talking about when you go in because you have a sore throat and the doctor asking you if you're suffering anxiety. We're talking about a little boy uh, who gets a little restless, uh, restless uh, being tied to a desk for a few hours uh, and uh, them throwing at the single mother uh, that little Johnny is so bright and all he needs is a little bit of help to pay attention. Throwing these drugs at them. Christian Yoder, let me borrow an outstanding book called Pandora's Lab. And in this book, it tells seven stories of science gone wrong. And it's an incredible book because it's talking about how wonder drugs uh, that were found that everybody thought were a panacea. This was the answer. This is going to take care of everything. Uh, and they embraced these drugs only to find out uh, that it became a scourge. Uh, and one chapter is dedicated uh, to opium. Do you know that they took opium? You know, they gave it another name. They called it heroin. Heroin. You know why? Because they believed it was heroic. They believed that heroin was an answer, that it was going to uh, help uh, people that were suffering, um, and it was treated that way. Um, and yet heroin or opium, think about this, you and I are living in the middle of an opioid crisis here in America. Do you know that in Vietnam from 1962 to 1975, in 13 years, around 57,000 American men lost their lives in that war? Do you know that last year in one year, 64,000 Americans died uh, through opioid or opium overdose in America? You know them as Vicodin and Oxycontin and any number of painkillers that people get addicted to. But when they first came out, it was heroin. It was a wonderful drug. It was heroic. It was the answer. And it turned into a curse. And I submit to you uh, that what has happened today um, is these drugs uh, that they were so excited about, that they were going to affect mood, they were going to lift a depressed person out of their problems, and, all, and they had no idea. And yet here we are today. Uh, oh, we can cry more guns, guns, guns. Uh, but I want to tell you uh, that we are raising a generation of zombies. Uh, there are many, many people here uh, who are taking these drugs, um, and now it is having a dramatic effect upon their lives. Psychology Today said these very drugs we hope can treat mental illness are at the same time 
same time drugs that cause violent behavior, including suicide and aggression towards others. In fact, SSRIs are the leading drugs in a recent compiled of the top 10 drugs that cause violent behavior. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Revelation 18 is a haunting verse of scripture. Revelation 18, you have to understand, is the judgment on what they call commercial Babylon. There's two judgments, chapter 17, religious Babylon, chapter 18, commercial Babylon, and the merchants of the world are being judged. And it says, for your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, and of the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. Sorcery. Through sorcery. You have that second clip ready? This one's going to shake you a little bit. I'd like to introduce you to my daughter, Caitlin Elizabeth McIntosh. Well, it's actually only a two-dimensional image of her, but it's all I have left. She died of suicide at age 12 years, three months, just eight weeks after being put on Paxil and then Zoloft. Our daughter Julie had been excited about college and had scored 1,300 in her SAT several weeks before her death. Instead of picking out colleges with our daughter, my wife and I had to pick out a cemetery plot for her. Instead of looking forward to visiting Julie at school, we now visit her grave. On September 9, 2001, in a state of confusion and hopelessness, I put a 38 Special Smith & West revolver under my chin and pulled the trigger. I went from being a shy and mildly depressed but never suicidal kid to being overcome with thoughts of hurting and killing myself while on the SSRI drugs. Thoughts which I acted on. He told me, I cannot stand the way this drug makes me feel. Two days later, he committed suicide. How do you erase the picture of your child trying to run in front of a moving car? Would you people put your children on this drug? Would you take it yourselves? A lot of the people who spoke this morning, um, the picture that was presented of their child or someone they knew was not someone who was very, very ill. It was someone who had relatively minor type um, findings who are put on these drugs with terrible consequences. Let me close and talk to you about God and depression, and we'll finish up here. Because the truth is that what we're really looking at is the lesson of supply and demand. You know, the New York Times estimates that depression costs America about a half a trillion dollars a year. Because obviously the human heart is crying out for peace and they obviously have no joy. What's happening here is that the reason that these drugs permeate society is because people are depressed. Because people have inner conflict inside of them and have decided they can do it. Many of these people would never drive down to uh, 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 Commerce uh, and General McMullen and go and try to pick up uh, some illegal drug from some shady drug dealer, but they don't have to anymore. They can walk uh, into a Walgreens or an HEB uh, and uh, feel good about themselves, uh, have somebody wearing a white smock uh, and, uh, and have all the symbols of professionalism, uh, give it to them in a little white bag. And yet, they don't want to admit that really I'm no different than the person 
standing on the street corner on the west side of San Antonio. Same reason I no longer drink alcohol or use drugs is the same reason I don't use SSRIs. You know why I don't smoke weed? Because I don't need to. Because I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, uh, the conflict that was in my life, which was my sin and my guilt, was resolved. And I don't have to smoke weed, and you smoke weed because you're miserable. Because there's something wrong, and instead of making it right, we simply go up, we let our problems go up and smoke. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 15, 11, these things, again, the Lord Jesus speaking, these things I have spoken to you that, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. These are the words of Jesus, peace and joy. This is, this is the domain of the Christian. This is what belongs to the believer. That what you and I have isn't mere religion tonight. But it's to be able to come to Christ. Uh, and when we come to Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the, de- the conflict that triggers the depression, the unresolved issue, the unforgiveness or the resentment or the shame, is dealt with, and as it is dealt with, God begins to help us. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of this world produces death. You know what he's saying there? He wrote a letter to these people that upset them and hurt them. Do you know why it hurt them? Because he confronted their sin. And nobody likes to have their sin confronted. It's hurtful. It bothered them. And Paul said, I knew when I told you this that you were going to be hurt and you were going to feel sorrow. He goes, but you know what? The only way you ever get to repentance is that you feel bad about what you're doing. Feeling bad says, I've got to resolve this conflict in my life. How am I going to resolve it? Well, the world says you need a pill uh, and that will take the edge off of your feeling bad uh, and you can go on with your life um, and everything will be fine. Uh, But no, no, no. The Bible says rather than that, they found an alternative method and that alternative method was repentance. I am going to stop doing what is wrong. I'm going to start doing what is right. And I'm going to seek Jesus' forgiveness uh, to make right what I did wrong. That's Christianity 101 right there. That I find in Jesus Christ the ability to both be forgiven for what I've done and find in him the power so I don't have to keep doing what I was doing. And he said, godly sorrow leads to repentance. What a terrible thing to take that away from somebody. What a terrible thing to numb that out of them. Worst thing you can do when someone's being convicted is put your hand on their back and say, oh, that's okay, that's not that bad. Because godly sorrow produces repentance. And some people need to feel bad because if they never feel bad, they'll never feel compelled to get it right. Let me just see. I know I'm going a little bit long, but bear with me just for a second here. So in David Compellian's book, he tells a very interesting story about a woman. And this woman... Uh, went to her pastor because she was feeling depressed. It's a long story, but I'm only going to use one paragraph. Go ahead and put that up. It says these words, stressed out and depressed, she had sought her pastor's spiritual counsel, 
But he responded by advising her, just as he had done with the other members of the congregation, to go on antidepressants. She says, not a word was said about my sinful attitudes. Five years later, unhappy with their, quote, happy church, she and her husband sought out and joined a more traditional and biblical church where sin is called sin and people are held accountable. At the new church, she said, I met people who grieve over their sin. To This was foreign to me. I have never cried over my sin. I have felt bad for my sin, but I never truly grieved over it. I began to think that perhaps that little pill was meant to take the edge off, was preventing me from grieving over sin. The antidepressant, she, she concluded, had blurred the ends of the emotional spectrum so that I experienced neither deep sadness nor great joy. I have now come to appreciate that both are vital to the Christian life. Something's happening. It's there. Everybody knows it, but we're watching our media stay silent. That's the world that we live in. We don't just live in a world where in 128 days, 99 people can be massacred by three individuals randomly. We're now living in a world where this is happening and everybody's seeing it. And the people that are in control of the media are not talking about it. You see, this evening, if you've got conflict in your life, bitterness, hate, shame, forgiveness, unresolved issues, and all that turmoil is juicing up in anxiety, depression, you don't need a pill, man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, resolved that conflict, and he said, when you pray, you say, forgive my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. And those powerful words tonight can unlock you and totally set you free. I want you to bow your heads. No one's moving about just for a minute. I felt the need to address this issue because you and I are living in this culture and every person here better have their eyes open. I understand there are parents here where you're going to come under pressure. Well, that's what your son or daughter needs. There are people here that are going to go into the doctor for some a minor ailment, and you're going to listen as doctors begin to ask you if you're depressed and anxiety and offer to write your prescription. I know how this works. The other day, I preached a sermon on this subject uh, on the East Coast, uh, and uh, after the service, uh, I mentioned a particular drug that was uh, used by, by a school shooter, and the mother uh, came up to me alarmed. Uh, she said, I, my son and I just went in because he's having migraine headaches. That's the exact drug uh, that they uh, uh, prescribed to him, and she was absolutely shocked that he went in for migraines, uh, and they gave him a psychotropic drug that has the side effect in some of that kind of behavior. This is the world we're living in now. Christians are going to have to use discernment. Maybe you're here and say, Pastor, there's conflict in my life. There's shame, there's guilt, there's hatred. Things are going on inside of me and they've disturbed my soul. Maybe you turn to, whether it's illegal or legal drugs, whether it's alcohol, I'm here to tell you tonight that there's forgiveness. There's power to change. And while our heads are bowed, you're here, you're not right with God. You say, Pastor Ruby, would you pray for me? I need Jesus. Not religion, not joining a church, but I need to come to Jesus Christ. 
There's godly sorrow working right now inside of me. I feel the weight of my guilt and my sin. That godly sorrow can bring you to Christ tonight. If you want prayer and say, I need Jesus, I'll ask you to lift your hand right now. Just put it up where I can see it. God blessed his hand. Who else? Put up your hand. Uh, I need Jesus, Pastor. I'm not right with God. I, I, this thing is raging inside of my soul right now, and I'm going to give it to Jesus. All these other things don't help. Whatever they offer is temporary. I need lasting change. Lift up your hand all around this building. I need Jesus Christ to come in my life. Pray for me. I'm not right with God, and I want to repent. Thank God for these hands. Who else? I'm not right with God. I need to repent. I need Jesus to come inside to forgive me. I need power to change. Lift up your hand. All around this building, maybe you're a backslider. Maybe there was a time when you prayed a prayer, went to church for a little while, but you're in this building, and you are not right with God. You've gone your own way. You sit here backslidden. You're away from God. And tonight, the Holy Spirit in his love is dealing with you troubling you on the inside. You're feeling the conviction. That conviction is the love of God to bring you to repentance. So that's me tonight. Lift up your hand. I'm not right with God. God blessed his hand. Who else tonight? Lift up your hand. Pray for me, pastor. I'm not right with God. Hands have gone up. Are there any others? I need to get my heart right with God. Would you pray for me? I need Jesus Christ to come in my life. Slip it up all around this building. Amen. Amen. I, I want those that lifted their hand just to lift their head and look at me right now. I want to pray for you. Ma'am, I want to pray for you. Would you come right now? I want you to come right over here. Would you come? Just come join us right here. Don't be embarrassed. Would you come right now? Make your way right here. Amen. Uh, we could have uh, you come. We can get a couple of sisters to help us this evening. Pray with these this evening. Praise the Lord right here. Praise God. Right here. Amen. We need someone to minister right here. Amen. Anybody else? Lift up your hand. You know, church, tonight, this is the culture. It's a very sobering issue, but this is the world that we live in. Parents, you're going to have to make decisions about these kinds of things. We're having these pills thrown at us by the tens of millions. I want to tell you tonight as a Christian, the way we resolve inner conflict is at the cross. The way we deal with Shame and guilt is to come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. I believe you died. You rose from the dead. You can forgive me. And Lord, the conflict that comes from bitterness and resentment towards others. I'm going to settle that at the cross. Because I'm going to tell you, there are a great deal of many people, even Christian people tonight, are believing that, you know what, I need a drug. I need to deal with this with an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. Do your own research, folks. This is happening all around us for a reason. We're going to stand together right now. Amen. I'm going to open these altars. Thank God that we have a place that we can come and pray. Come down to the foot of the cross. Find grace, the promise of God to every believer. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. He said, I will give you joy. The very thing tonight that the world is desperately seeking is that belongs to the believer tonight. These altars are open. We're going to worship God this evening. Peace, peace, wonder. Oh, peace, only 
fun.